I enjoy TikTok a lot, way more than I expected to. Certain social media really captivates me, others don't. One of my favorite things on TikTok, also on YouTube, are these dogs who know how to push little buttons that say words. One of them is a dog named Stella, who I think is a boxer. One of them is a standard poodle named Bunny. I always love animal cognition stories, animal cognition experiments, maybe, I guess is the right word. Sounds bad, but, you know, these kinds of things. Like there was a border collie who knew 500 words. You could get something new and the border collie would know how to categorize it. You could describe something and it would grab it from behind the couch. All these things that are, you know, I was always taught these were tricks, that these were animal training tricks and clever. They were, you know, just looking at their owner and figuring it out. Clearly, that is not the case. There's also a wonderful study, it was National Geographic, about a parrot, a gray parrot, who not only had an extensive, extensive vocabulary, but before its death, not long before its death, like in the year or two before its death, had started to be able to state what it was like to be a bird a little bit. Like there were just these glimmers of conversations about being able, so they were beyond just rote words and demands for food or exercise or just that kind of thing. And they were into more existential conversations. Sometimes we anthropomorphize. This was a careful study, so they were trying not to do that. Anyway, anthropomorphize or not, I really enjoy watching I've seen a lot of Bunny the dog ask questions and request to go out. There was one, the, the ones that are the most fun to watch are the ones that are the most surprising. So Bunny at one point asked, oh, her button broke. The button for beach just stopped working and she wanted to go to the beach. So she asked for walk outside water. I mean, that is a decent workaround for Beach. And more importantly, she achieved communication. Her owner knew immediately. She has also looked in the mirror and asked who that is. And then when told who that is, has walked around to a glass door that faces the same way, seeming to look for the same dog who should be outside if it was the same. It's, she's just, she's working it out. She may never work it out. Who knows what her capacity is? But she's trying to work those kinds of things out. Of course... What studying learning in other animals does is reflect back to us, much like the mirror, what learning is like for us and for humans. One of the things I love about Bunny is that she will sometimes ask questions. And her owner answers the questions. Or her owner will have a request of her. 
And there is a, what I would consider normally, a very long delay when this happens between the question and Bunny's answer. Now, the reason I consider it long, I've trained quite a few dogs myself, including this one next to me. And I've enjoyed the process very much. And I'm familiar with lots of dog training and sheep dogs, all those kinds of things. And you expect very quick response. When you say sit, you want the dog to sit. That is a command. And there is understanding in that command. But that is more like the dog training piece, the quickness of it, the quickness of when you tell a dog to lie down or come or in those sheep dogs to, you know, move around the flock from the back. It's the quickness of it that has this whole training response. It is done, as everyone knows now, the results are better and the long-term relationship is better if that's done with positive reinforcement. Many of us were not trained via positive reinforcement and still are not taught by positive reinforcement. It works better. Again, though, these are all kind of training things, not necessarily teaching and learning on a higher level. What's so interesting to see is as Bunny is learning more conceptual ideas, she takes a very long time to think about them. Bunny refers to her owners as mom and dad, and she may press where dad. And the answer is dad upstairs. And Bunny will often stand for a very long time before deciding to go upstairs and find it. Clearly, she understood what the answer was. But the lag time that it took for her to conceptualize what was going on is much longer than a command plus obedience. Much, much, much longer, which I find so interesting because it's way outweighs what I would be comfortable with, with a dog. And it's changed. Watching her has changed me and changed how I relate to this dog who's snoring softly next to me. Now, when I make requests of her, you know, some of the basic ones, sit, stay, especially the safety ones, like come and stay, I want immediate obedience to. But some of the others, I'm now kind of giving her a little more patience to think it through, to think it out, to get the concepts. Now, I already know, and I've talked about this before, developing children, development is development is development. They also have to do that whole formulating of concepts and figuring stuff out. And I've talked about it when it comes to the idea of no and don't, that when you tell a kid, don't touch that, Small kids here touch that, touch that, and now you're mad at them for doing what you just told them you wanted 
because it was such a cognitive load to backtrack to don't. And it takes a long time to learn that skill, a long time of people being angry at you and undermining their relationship with you. Far better would have been to say, hands off. And then you would know with clarity what your parent wanted and be able to comply or think about it or in some way interact in a healthy way at that point. So it's very interesting to me to see in positive interactions with dogs still the lag and to give that the time that it requires. And it reminds me that one thing that I would go back in a time machine and change is my own impatience. I felt, and I did have a a lot of patience with very young children, particularly prelingual and early lingual children. I had infinite patience with them. But the minute they could communicate, my patience began to shrink. And actually, I I did start a very effective disciplinary technique that I can only recommend, which is describing to children when your own temper patience is waning, like when you're really getting to the end of your rope. If you describe the state of your patience in vegetables or fruit, it can be very helpful to a kid. You know, when you're in conversation and you say, well, you know what, we can wait until they open up the cotton candy tent. My patience is the size of a watermelon. So you can do that. You can you can let a kid know how big your patience is. Or if they are dawdling and you say, my patience is now the size of an orange and I do not want it to get to the size of a strawberry. So I'm going to set an alarm for two minutes and then we're going to go whatever state you're in. You can let people know where your patience is. What I'm talking about is in the expectation of understanding higher emotional concepts or difficult situations or in building that learning environment, I think there's a lot of value to saying there may be a gap between my understanding of this situation and even this even this 17-year-old's understanding of this situation. And I think by the time, particularly by the time my kids were in high school, I expected way quicker grasps of changes, for example, in what we might be doing. I, I was always patient with transitions for little kids. As they got older, I was not necessarily as patient. And watching the dog have to think it through just reminds me of that necessity for patience. It doesn't come naturally to me at all. And I think even though I see the value of it now, since I spent years without sleeping, I don't know how I would have found those reserves of patience. So I have to forgive myself too. But I think the value of patience well beyond, like well into those years where you start feeling like the kid is quote unquote old enough to know this 
for whatever reason, if they don't, then they're not. And then it's up to us to try to find some reserve of patience or at least inform them what our level of patience is and then come back to resuming whatever it was we were talking about that was difficult. Go away and recharge your patience so that you can come back to this discussion and build the relationship instead of working on destroying it, which is always, always, always the end game. With me today is Cheryl Adams, and we're going to talk about her experience educating her kids at home. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. I'm glad to have you. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you found yourself homeschooling? Um, It's kind of an interesting question. Like, I was thinking about this at the beginning of pandemic because, you know, all these families were posting like crazy on the homeschool forums, which are usually, you know, it's pretty quiet. Like every once in a while you get somebody who's coming in that's new and you're really excited to help them. But all of a sudden, you know, the homeschool forums were getting like flooded. And I think, I know it's overwhelming for the the newbies. It was also as a veteran, it was really overwhelming too, to see all these people coming in and you want to help them. And you're like, I can't respond to all these posts. Right. But I started thinking about like, you know, when did I decide to homeschool? And I have to be honest, I couldn't come up with the moment. Like there was no moment. It was just at the time, my former husband and I, when we were having the kids, I think we, it just seemed to sort of flow with everything that we believed in, I guess. Uh And I have three kids. My daughter is 18 and she's a freshman at UMaine this year. And she never homeschooled. She was always a regular typical school kid. And she felt very strongly that she belonged in school and not because she was an extrovert and super social, but kind of the opposite because Mm. she knew that if, I think she knew that if she stayed home, she would be perfectly happy just kind of being at home and not kind of putting herself out there to socialize and, and, force herself to meet people, which is kind of interesting because that's exactly what's happening at UMaine for her right now. Like she has no roommate. Everything is very isolated. She's not going, she only has one in-person class meeting per week. And, you know, she's perfectly happy like being by herself. But anyway, uh, so I don't steer too far away from your original question. (laughs) I think it just kind of made sense for us. Like it just, it felt right. My background and as a teacher was that I was actually a special educator before I stayed home with my two boys and I was able to sort of see firsthand what happened to boys in the education system, particularly in the early education years when, you know, my son did actually go to kindergarten for, uh, I happened to break my leg the August before my son would have entered kindergarten. Oh, wow. And my other son was preschool age. They're exactly two years apart, same birthday and everything. So fortunately, we were able to register him last minute, get him into kindergarten. And everything I'd sort of thought might happen kind of happened. 
you know, he was put in remedial reading without letting me know, communicating that as a parent. And again, as a special ed teacher, so I knew they had no obligation to tell me that this was happening. But when I found out, I, you know, I stormed the castle. I was like, you know, why would you do this? Why right. would you put him in remedial reading? Not explain to me that he was in remedial reading because I probably would have told you, please don't do that. Don't waste your time. This is a developmental skill. You're trying to force my child who's not ready to walk to walk right. and he's not ready to read. Give him a break. This is kindergarten. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be play-based, but kindergarten was no longer, you know, it wasn't play-based. And for the kids who are in that developmental gap, where, you know, reading is a developmental skill, and it's the one that we hammer away at in kindergarten now. And you can start to read as early as two or three, which was what happened to my brother and I, or you could read, start to read as late as seven or eight. Yeah. And my son was the kid who at eight, just one day, literally started reading. He was like, I really want to read. And then he started reading. And my younger son was very similar. He was eight and just was like, hey, I can read now. Yeah. So anyway, so it just kind of, it sort of, by putting my kid, my, my son in school or both of my kids in school for that brief moment, really kind of solidified my belief that home-based learning was probably going to work better for them. And mm -hmm. it was definitely going to work better for me too. Cause I think that's the thing is that, you know, homeschooling isn't just about the kids. It's kind of about the family dynamic and yeah. how it changes that family dynamic. And for me, it was definitely changing it for the better. I mean, I, still like you know especially during these times it was a gift that we had already been homeschooling and that was the one thing we didn't have to freak out about so yeah yeah, yeah mine too in that suddenly it didn't uh, when my, my kids were in school sometimes and they were out of school sometimes the logistics mm -hmm. for me when they were homeschooling were so simple yeah I mean I had to work out child care I had to work out I had to work out what you have to work out a lot of times in school anyway it's just that from eight to three you don't have to work it out. Yeah. But then the rest of everything we did could be any time around mm -hmm. anybody that has a need. It was mm -hmm. astonishing to me how much control I had over time afterwards. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I always tell people that the real brilliant aspect of homeschooling is the luxury of time that you just, you don't have when you're hustling your kids to get up in the morning, get it, making sure they have all their stuff that they need or trying to hold them accountable for that. And the fighting that ensues over that <laughs> there's that early morning battle and I'm not a morning person. So, you know, even just me getting up and getting my kids to school on time. And then the other weird thing that would happen too, is that if my kids were not at school on time, they would be punished when in fact, Sometimes it wasn't their fault. It might have actually been my fault. Yeah. You know, I couldn't find my keys or like whatever. It was just kind of a thing. And anyway, and then, you know, they're gone from the school day and then they come home and then it's like homework. You know, they right. have so much homework, even in like the younger years. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, my daughter was never a proud, like my daughter loved, I always joke on like, I never helped her with a project ever. And sometimes it showed, but I was like, <laughs> I don't care. Like this is her learning process and she didn't want me to help her. Yeah. So, you know, her project might not have looked like the one that her parent did because it wasn't, <laughs> but yeah, but we have this luxury of time and we have this opportunity to take all the things that people are trying to jam into their weekends or jam into those after school hours 
and we can lovingly place them, you know, throughout the week. That's one of the things that I think is most valuable in the, in homeschooling is just this luxury of time that you don't feel is rushed. And and that's not the case for all homeschooling families, though. I think that there are some families who, you know, they do stack the deck, you know, they really, you know, they're getting their kids to co-ops, they're rushing their kids up. Like, I mean, that's a choice. And, you know, it's not a judgment. It's more just, I know that's not how it is for everyone. But for us, the pace of life is a little bit slower. And I really appreciate that. I think the time thing is really interesting, too, because I think it can be even more granular in that my kids had a gift of deep thinking time. So when Mm -hmm. they were invested or interested in something, they could spend as long as they wanted or needed on that thing until they had come to the end of some kind of natural conclusion, Mm -hmm. whether they were tired or hungry, or just felt like, oh, I get it, or I get it enough for today. And when they did go into school, there wasn't a ton of transitions. But one of the things that was a transition was teachers grabbing their work when the bell rang. And they were like, don't you want me to do it? I actually got called into a meeting day two of my oldest daughter's second grade because she was insubordinate, which I was like, I mean, (laughs) it's not the military. I don't know quite where you're coming with this word, but that's what she had done. She had said to the teacher, I thought you wanted me to finish it. And that was enough to bring me in as a parent and get chewed out. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I know it's very bizarre. Like some of the like some, well, you know, because I think our kids also, they get, they get used to questioning yeah. kind of everything, which I think is being a really good thing. But I get called into school. So my son, my, my middle child, my older son, he decided after playing a season of baseball in second grade that he wanted to try school. Okay. And I was like, that's fine. I was like, this is your choice. This is your education. So if you want to go to school for third grade, have at it. I said, the one thing you need to do all summer is you need to read and just read and read and read. Because when you get into school, you're beyond the learn to read stage you are now and you're going to have to read in order to learn stage. So you're going to have to actually be reading all the time. And he was like, all right. And so he did. He read all summer. And when he got into school, he was fine. And academically, you know, there were some things, you know, there were some gaps here and there, but I mean, he was able to fill them in really quickly. But his teacher was like, you know, I think he's not getting enough sleep. And I was like, well, what makes you say that? Because this child, my youngest child is not a great sleeper. My middle child is awesome. Like he goes (laughs) to bed, he puts himself to bed at between 930 and 10. He sleeps all night. He gets up like, you know, at eight o'clock. I mean, he has his bed thing. His sleep is dialed. And I was like, well, what makes you say that? And she's like, well, he puts his head down on the desk all the time. I was like, yeah, that's going to be a stimulation issue. I was like, I'd be really curious to hear what he has to say about that. And I said, you know, your teacher's worried that you're tired in school. He's like, oh no. He's like, I put my head down on my desk because I just can't take like, he's like, none of the kids are behaving. Nobody wants to listen. Nobody's really ready to learn. He's like, I'm just waiting for like the actual content of the class to happen, <laughs> you know, and I explained that to her, you know, she was like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense now. He's like, powering oh. down until needed. He is. He's waiting. He's just waiting. And, you know, and that's very, it didn't surprise me when she said that because, you know, this is my son. He kind of, he powers down and then he likes, you know, when he has to be on, he's on. When he doesn't have to be on, he's not, yeah. like not at all. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. And then, you know, he, 
two weeks before Christmas of this year that he decided to go to school, there was a morning when I had gone to the gym, I came home and I was like, Hey, bud, you got to get up. We got to get you to school. You're going to be late again. And he was like, yeah, I don't think I want to go today. And this was like the third time in about four weeks that he didn't want to go to school. And I was like, all right, we need to talk about this. Don't want to go to school thing because there's an expectation of attendance. Yeah. And to be honest, it's really the only expectation that school has in my humble opinion. (laughs) But I was like, we need to decide if you're going to show up for school or not. And we need to decide like how often you're going to show up to school or not. I was like, because we can create this hybrid model where you only go into school for certain things. Like I had this whole plan of how I was going to fight the system to accommodate what, you know, wanted to do and I was like but I'm gonna go lay down for 10 minutes you think about whether you don't want to go to school today or you don't want to go to school again and let me know and so I was convinced he was gonna come in and say no I'm gonna go to school today but let's figure something out no he came in he's like no I'm good I'm not going back to school you know what really boring he's like I'm not learning anything it's just kind of boring and I was like all right well it's two weeks before Christmas break do you want to go in and like say goodbye to people have some closure he's like no He was like, I mean, because literally he's one of those kids who he's either all in or all out. Yeah. And he was all in for school. And then he was like, yeah, no, school's kind of, no, it's not there. I'm not having it. And yeah. that was it. He was done. And he has never once asked to go back again. And I check in with both of my kids and neither one of them has really, they don't want to go to school. So, yeah. 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 It's so funny. Mine had a similar trajectory in, in that my oldest did a half year of second grade then my middle did a half year of second grade and she really was that same thing she just came in one day to me and she said I feel like I'm I've got the idea and she didn't go in again until the end of middle school and went to a school that she thought would be supportive it was an arts charter school so it should have been supportive of performing and it took like two years of her working so hard to go it really isn't. It's not me. It's really, which is really amazing because in the meantime, when she was homeschooling, she started an opera for three years. So it was like, well, yeah, you would think that the opportunities at a performing arts school would continue for you, but nope, they stopped dead. And she tried for a couple of years and then just said, okay, this isn't, this isn't doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting you know, even my older daughter, and I think this is so where, even though my older daughter never homeschooled, I think my homeschool parenting slash teaching still had a major impact on her, you know, because she could see what we were doing. And she understood, I think she understood the limitations of school, but still felt like that was a good place for her. And I, I don't disagree. I think it was a good place for her, but her father lives in Providence. So she had some school choice when mm-hmm. she got to, when she got to high school and she had decided to go to classical high school, which is the classical high school. It's the honors high school. You have to test to get in and all this stuff. Oh, wow. It's very old school. If you're just joining us, you're listening to nine to thrive, a podcast about balancing work community, and creativity. It, it's super old school. It is, that's why they call it classical. It is classical education. And I had 
kind of, you know, encouraged her to look at all the other options, like the Met School in Providence, I think is really interesting. It's kind of the closest thing you can do to homeschooling within the institution. But the perception of the Met, interestingly enough, is that's the place where kids who don't do well in school, that's where they go. So mm. it's the underachievers who go to the Met, which I think is really unfortunate because a lot of the people that I know who graduated from the Met are some of the most, they're overachievers in their lives now. You know, they've become the entrepreneurs, they've become the alternative educators, they've become the activists in the community. But anyway, so I said to my daughter, I'm like, you know, don't dismiss places like the Met, don't dismiss, you know, these other options. But she was like, no, I think classical is the right fit for me. And I think she was right. I think she made the right choice. But three quarters of the way into her junior year, she was really struggling with anxiety. And she tried in her sophomore, it actually started much earlier. It probably started in her freshman, sophomore year, but it had started to really peak out in her junior year. Cause at the end of her sophomore year, I was like, well, if you're having struggling with anxiety, I think it's then let's get you in to talk to someone. Let's find, let's go all these, you know, talk to the pediatrician, let's find you a counselor, all this other stuff. Yeah. To make yeah. the, the story as short as humanly possible. Oh, no, that's right. By the time her junior year, or halfway into her junior year, her anxiety was really peaking out. She was spending a lot of time in the nurse's office. And my child, she's not, she's not a hypochondriac. Like, she's not one of those kids who just kind of shows up in the nurse's office to get out of class. It was actually stressing her out that she was missing as much school, but she couldn't also be comfortable in the classroom. And she wasn't missing any work. Her grades were okay. They were like BC range, which probably a little lower than they should have been and she understood like there was all this struggle and it was based around this anxiety and she's like I think I want to take medication and I was like okay well here's I was like here's the thing with medication I was like is that I'm not a professional and she was going back and forth between her dad's house and my house and I was like in order for you to be prescribed medication your pediatrician can do it but I don't feel comfortable with you taking medication without having a clinical psychologist or somebody, a professional who's you're able to talk to and who's able to observe a shift and change that the medication be, could be causing. Right. And I was like, you know, SSRIs are, they're, they're tough. I was like, and you're not somebody who has an anxiety disorder. This is, I was like, we need to identify the cause of the anxiety first. And she's like, well, it's school. <laughs> like it was, it was so easy. She's like, well, it's school. And I was like, okay, well, let's pretend for a second that you're an adult in an adult world and you're having anxiety that is really impacting your ability to do your job and it's impacting your functioning in your health. I was like, if this was a job, what would you do? She's like, well, I'd find a new job. I was like, mm. exactly. I was like, so maybe it's time we find you a new educational setting. And she was like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, and the reason I bring this up is that I think it's so hugely important for kids to understand and parents and families to understand that there's choice. And isn't that the pandemic is kind of demonstrating like, oh, wait, there's choice. Yeah. And as soon as my daughter understood there was choice, it was like a bubble burst. And a lot of the anxiety had kind of leveled out. She was still able to function in school, but she immediately started researching all her options on her own. She completely on her own. She said, I know that homeschooling is not for me, so I'm going to not do that. Mm -hmm. But she ended up coming back to the high school in my hometown. We're just outside of Providence. So it was only like a 15 minute difference between her dad's house and my house. So geographically, this wasn't 
at all a problem. That's nice. But she contacted the guidance counselor there herself. She set up an interview with the guidance counselor. I went in with her for that one. And it was kind of amazing because the guidance counselor classical didn't really give her any guidance, whereas the, mm. the person at her new high school was actually giving her guidance in the first meeting. I can't believe that is still as touch and go as it was when I was 16. Oh, yeah. No, and it's, <laughs> you know, and again, I think that we we really do kind of make kids feel like, and and I shouldn't just say kids, but families feel like you have only this one option. And, and because if you're not a family who can afford to send your child to private school, that the right. only option you have is the public school system, and this is what we need to use. And if the public school system isn't working for your child, well, you know, that's it. Like, you're just going to have to suck it until you, sorry, you're just going to have to suck it up until they, you know, graduate in 12th grade, and then they can start their lives. And it's like, right. so wrong. Like, how many kids are, you know, and we're seeing like the data coming back and the research that, you know, teenagers are experiencing extraordinarily high levels of anxiety and depression right. at levels right. that were not present when we were kids. You know, they, it was, it was different. And um, I think the amount of, uh, the expectations of kids in school are different, like what yes. we expect them to accomplish, what we expect them to learn, and how much of that really has any long-term impact on them later in life. Like the things that they're being forced to engage in, at, you know, in their teenage years, really how useful is that going to be when they get out into the real world? L learning for tests. Yeah, it is. It's learning for tests. And it's also trying to, and I think that, you know, in the, for example, in the classical environment, I think they're rate of students who graduate and go to college is extraordinarily high. And also that expectation that, you know, you have to do all these things and fit, you know, to get to college too. And right. even when we were kids, like, or at least when I was a kid, the expectation of college was, it was high and it, in the community I grew up in, it was very high, but it was, it was different. Like, I don't know. I just felt like it was different. It was, I mean, I didn't do college tours. I didn't look at, I looked mm. at one campus, you know, I mean, I think my brother went to a few, but I mean, I was also very sick my senior year, so I really couldn't do anything. Like I took my SATs untimed with a can of Pepsi in front of me, like, <laughs> you know, and I, I went to art school, like, you know, and I kept on telling, well, and that was the weird thing too, is I kept telling people, I'm like, well, I'm going to go to art school. And they're like, no, you're not. No, like my guidance yeah. was like, no, you're not going to art school. Like you're going to do something else. Cause I was a really st solid academic student. And so I did experience some of that, like, no, there's no choice, like you have no choice. But because I got sick, all of a sudden, I had all this choice. Oh, wow. And it expanded the my ability to choose. And so I think that's also what kind of has influenced my own parenting around how, you know, all that hardcore academic work that I plowed through in my first three years of high school really meant nothing when I got to like it was kind of brilliant because in my senior year I was taking AP calculus, AP chemistry, AP humanities. And they could, they're like, well, we can't find you tutors for calculus and chemistry. I'm like, I'm going to art school. I don't care. Like <laughs> I've already fulfilled my math and science, drop them. But I mean, it took literally three months of fighting with the school to be like, please like just get rid of, I don't need this stuff. And I've never yeah. looked back and gone, 
geez, I wish I finished calculus, you know? <laughs> I mean, now, but here's the thing, like if I needed calculus, I would probably you could... really be excited to learn it now. Whereas then I was like, this is awful. But it's also not impossible for you to pick it up if you want to. Exactly. exactly. I've been way more interested in math as a homeschooler mm-hmm. than I ever was as a as a tracked kid i was i was i went to school during the height of tracking so if you tested out of something rather than get you any support or help they just said well everybody go with the dumb kids and then you sat there learning how to balance your checkbook um so in in all the arts and languages and latin i was taking honors ap classes and then in math i was taking level four with you know the kids that they had decided to completely give up on but what's funny about it is that as a homeschooler i read books on like the invention of zero i familiarized myself with calculus i learned algebra at 40. You know, I had no interest in any of it from 17 to 40. (laughs) And then I was like, actually, it's kind of cool. Well, and the thing is, is that, you know, so I I also taught math, like I'm a licensed special educator. And the last, my last public school stint was before my now almost 13 year old was born. And I had to teach that level four math class. I'm still teaching algebra, but we pay, I paced it different. And I actually got in trouble for pacing it too slow. And that's like a whole nother story. But here's the thing, like as a homeschooler, we like when my kids were little, the way we, I would teach math was we would just talk about numbers and we'd talk about how we'd be in the car and I'd, we'd start talking about, say, adding two numbers or whatever. And I'd say, okay, well, how did you figure it out? And how did you figure it out? And all three of us would have different methods for figuring out this addition problem. And I was like, do you see where somebody else, like you use some subtraction, like if we think of this as addition, but it's really not in your head, it's more subtractive than it is additive. And how we all figure out problems is different. And that's the thing about math is that we've kind of sucked the joy out of it by making it a very linear learning experience. It's like, you know, building blocks, like you have to learn this skill first, then this skill, then this skill. And, you know, and everybody complained about common, everybody's still complaining about common core math because the hate for that, (laughs) because what they tried to do with common core math was they tried to create an institutionalized version of thinking about math from different perspectives, but because still have to hold kids accountable. Like, why do we do pencil and paper math? Like my kids are 11 and 13 and they can add multi-digit numbers in their heads, no problem. Yeah. Because that's how they've always considered number. And my youngest is like whiz, like with numbers. And, but the reason that we've come up with all these different ways, like, you know, stacking the numbers and writing them uh, horizontally and vertically and all these different methods is that we've had to accommodate a variety of different ways of holding kids accountable for their answers. And and then we took away all the kids' capacity to actually think about numeracy and think about numbers because we had to prove that they knew what they were talking about. And like math to me became, I mean, I always, I was a good math student and, and I liked math, but I have discovered a certain amount of joyousness in teaching math to my kids because we have, again, we have the luxury of time. I'm not right. held down to having to teach them 
this linear method of learning math. And, you know, the one thing that I really have been trying to work on with them is just percents, fractions, and decimals and how they're all related. And like, how exciting is that when you're like, oh, look at how this is all relative, you know? And that's the thing. It's like, even in schools, they don't explain to kids, well, why why are we learning it in this order? Why do we learn it this way? Like, and God forbid you ask that question. Anyway, yeah, math, super fun. Like as a parent, super fun. It's really fun, yeah. I haven't gotten to the point where I want to learn calculus or trig yet again, but, Mm. you know, working on algebra and again, doing percents and fractions and kind of going back through like all these concepts and the vocabulary, oh my God. My kids are like, why do they have to have all these complex words for something that's just not that complicated? I'm like, because in order to teach it, we had to create labels within the, the, the system. So you, you realize too, when you're teaching math in this much more organic way, like how much, again, we've sucked the joy out of math by yeah. turning, and, and why kids with language issues, whether they're, you know, learning English as their second language or kids who have difficulty reading, like a lot of, I was teaching a lot of the kids with language-based learning disabilities. I'm like, no wonder they struggle so much. It's a whole nother language that you have to learn in order to just get to the part where you get to play with the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And my, one of my kids, especially my oldest was very kinetic. And so when she would homeschool, I would often ask, what do you need to figure out this, this thing? What What do you need? And she'd be like, if I could do it with my hands, I'd feel a lot better. And it would be like, okay, well, here's a rope. Here's a hula hoop. Here's a measuring tape. Go outside and figure out pie from there. Yep. And it just became like, uh, you know, whereas sitting there at a table and doing a thousand more exercises weren't going to enlighten her at all. In fact, they were going to make her feel like she couldn't do it. <laughs> well, and you miss, I think, you know, schools kind of miss when you're, when your child's in school, because there's so much pressure to know, yeah. like, God forbid you take the test and you don't do well. And to me, like, again, when I was teaching this transition math class, you know, I would, because Tests are not just supposed to inform us about what our kids know. And this is the same thing for state standardized testing. Standardized testing was not just about telling us what kids know. It's supposed to be about helping us become better teachers, Mm -hmm. helping us understand what we're missing when we're teaching our kids. But we don't look at it that way. We're always trying to fix the kids. We're not trying to fix the teaching. We're trying to fix the kids. And, and that's my perspective as a special ed teacher anyway. Mm. I'm not sure that I can say that that's the way it is for everyone. But my experience was we're not trying to fix our teaching. We're trying to fix the kids. But oh, so around testing, you know, when my kids would, I would give my kids a test. And, you know, if a third of the class did not do well, like really not do well, like it would, I would have had to fail them on the test. I'm like, okay, what did I do wrong? Like, it wasn't about like, why don't you get it? It's like, what did I do wrong that you're not understanding this yet? Let's redo this. And sometimes I'd be like in the middle of the test with kids because, you know, my kids, again, because they, and a lot of them, they're IEPs, I had to spread them out. So it would be me and my teacher assistant. She would have half the group in one room and I'd have part of the group in another room. I mean, I would almost be reteaching during the test sometimes. And other teachers were like, why are you doing that? You know, the kids got to fail. And I'm like, no, I, how was that helpful? These kids already feel like they're not smart. They already think they're stupid in math. Why am I going to reinforce this 
untrue concept because they're not stupid and they're not dumb in math. They're completely capable of learning this. Maybe I'm not delivering the information properly. Yeah. Nine months ago, at the beginning of this very weird COVID pandemic time, I happened to go to the library on a whim and picked up a bunch of books that I hadn't planned on finding. Then everything shut down and I had them for a considerable amount of time. One of them I have to give back. And it's called Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility by a woman named Ellen J. Langer. It is several years old now. It's from 2009, so it's 10 years old now. I didn't realize when I picked it up that Langer is the author of a book called Mindfulness and a real popularizer of the concept of mindfulness. But I don't know really why I picked this up. I wasn't that particularly interested in health books. It's kind of funny because, of course, then suddenly we were all concerned about health. But back in February or March of 2020, I was just browsing. I just had a little bit of time, and I do love just grabbing a book I didn't expect to grab. I kind of liked the cover, and I really liked the concept of clockwise. And I think actually the thing that got it for me wasn't really the health bit, but the power of possibility. So Langer is part of a group of psychologists and neurologists that study the psychology of possibility. So much of medical and psychological focus is on what doesn't work. But Langer studies possibility. And it comes down so much to context. One of the things she studies, which I absolutely adore, is placebo. Placebos have fascinated me since forever. Sometimes just having something to take is enough to change your health. Not always. Uh, everyone always runs to the far extremes as well as cancer and then taking an M&M. Agreed. Agreed. People get sick and placebos are not, in fact, medicine for that sickness. But lots of things it does work on. Sometimes you can be in so much pain with a migraine that a placebo actually works. Also, placebos are incredibly powerful. They're really almost a medicine in their own right. I remember having a conversation many years ago with a nurse about the history of medicine. And I asked her, what I want to know is, obviously, the you know medieval and early physician practice of bloodletting is brutal and obviously it makes you weaker. So why did people think that it worked for so long? Probably the reason it worked is because so many things are in fact responsive to placebo. So if it feels like it works in those cases, it does work. The thing about counterclockwise is one of the things she goes at this topic with of, of possibility is to say, how do medical tests work? Well, I'll, I'll give an example of myself. I have a thyroid condition. It's a question of whether I have enough, whether my body is making enough and of the right kind. But what 
does enough mean? There is a demarcation where on one side, I'm considered sick and in need of treatment, but on the other side, just the tick, the number, point something before, I'm not. A lot of times that will be factored into a diagnosis, and, and that's actually not Langer's point. I might not feel sick until I'm given the diagnosis. Like, what's the difference between my mindset and what's the difference between the priming of my doctor or the interaction between my doctor or my nurses and me? Where are all of our mindsets in terms of possibility when you are diagnosed with something? So what she advocates is a radical reorganization of how we look at ourselves inside the bodies that we live in. Unsurprisingly, she argues for better mindfulness. What's interesting is the way in which aging and whether or not we believe ourselves into the symptoms of old age, she has tons of evidence to indicate that we do because other cultures often have people who are functional for longer periods of time. One very lovely thing that she does is talk about her own parents. Uh, her father is suffering, at the time of the book, her father is suffering from dementia. And she says, now that's a really interesting diagnosis because once you are diagnosed with dementia, the world becomes how bad is it and how fast is it progressing and how bad is it progressing. Her questions are, if you have bad days, if you have bad dementia for 20% of a day, what does the other 80% of your day look like? And how could we get that to be where the focus was? Where, how could we get it to be where that was the piece that we really looked at and made it so that maybe we can give you a break on that other 20%. It's an interesting way to look at this. And, and she finds all sorts of very compelling reasons to do this. She did an experiment that I think is delightful. She took a bunch of old guys. They, they were all in their 80s. And she told them all it was a year where they were much more active, like sometime in their mid 40s or mid 50s or something, when they were much more active. And she picked the year 1959. And they rented some college dorm or something. They brought these total strangers together. And all these guys, they told them, we're going to have you dress like it's 1959. We're going to pick a week from 1959. And that is what's going to be on the news. That's what we're going to discuss at the breakfast table. They made all the staff dress in clothes and hairstyles from around 1959. And for it was almost like it was like they did a historical reenactment, like when everybody dresses up like, you know, the Revolutionary Army and camps out or Plymouth Plantation or something like that, where they all acted like right now it is this particular week in 1959. And they kept low grade tabs medically on everybody, like they checked them for vital signs, but they tried not to make it doctory. Anyway, as you can imagine, this whole thing turned out to be really empowering 
for these guys. A bunch of them who felt old did not feel old at the end of the week. The questionnaires were very compelling about how their own view of their own aging was evaporating during that week. They all felt younger. They could do more. Their memories were better. One of the things she talks about regarding dementia, although not as a diagnosis, but the idea that like a lot of times people forget stuff more as they age, and then they walk around saying, oh, I'm getting dementia. That is detrimental to our health to go all the way to 60 from zero on that, because it is also true that as our context changes, some stuff we just stop caring about. We stop sweating it. So one of the reasons to forget is because you don't care what the plot of that TV show was. You've seen so many TV shows by this time. Who cares what that was? And rarely do we see that as a positive. We often, even in our own selves, find it as a sign that we're aging, as a sign that things are going badly and we're starting our long decline. But we really don't. And if you've ever hung around with the very old, you'll even notice that even then, even with people who are, you know, feeling poorly about themselves and sort of downward spiraling, one of the things I noticed when my parents were, my parents were old when they had me, so they just got older, obviously, but when they got very old, they actually did fine most of the time. The problems came when there was an event that caused a decline And even then, at the beginning, they usually made it right back up to where they were before that was that decline. Only towards the end did those seem to be more frequent and not give them enough time to rebound from the decline. So my father, for example, was on a train when he was 84, something 83 maybe, and he fell and he hit his head. Uh, He was very lucky that they were pulling into... Chicago because he went to Northwestern and had to have brain surgery. They thought he would be a vegetable and they, you know, did the whole thing with bolts in your head, the the whole, he was old. You know, the question was how much of this can he even heal from? And he did. He made it back to what he had been before. In fact, in many ways he was healthier. He was eating more healthy and physically he was great. And mentally, he was fantastic. He didn't suffer any ill effects at all, even to the day he died from that accident that should have rendered him a a vegetable. So if we look with pity at the elderly, it lets us forget them even more if we feel like or act like they're not all there, that they're not worthy of attention, that they're not perfectly fine most of the time, that Aging is a an expected thing, but it doesn't have to be a terrible thing. And I think in this culture, it's a terrible thing. And so Langer would argue that one of the reasons that it's so terrible is by being mindless around it. If you can sort of track in your own mental capacity the things that are more difficult for you, essentially she's doing what I talk about a lot around homeschooling, You will always need to change your environment dynamically in response to what you're doing. You just do. Our environment has changed dramatically, dynamically in response to COVID. We can't go out. We wear masks, a million things. But 
That is not without its compensations. By not driving, the air is healthier. By not driving, we're able to spend an extra half hour walking the dog, making us healthier. There's all sorts of compensations. And so Langer would argue, why not spend as much time arguing for possibilities over limitations? Fundamentally, that's going to make you much healthier mentally and physically. And she's got plenty of evidence to support that statement. But it also, I believe, strengthens our relationships. If you're hanging out with someone and they pity you all the time, you're not going to be that happy to be around them. So bring that out to hanging around with elderly people and pitying them or treating them as if they're very old or as if they are infirm does not do them any favors at all. That's true with our families, our kids as well. They started out very helpless, but as every year goes by, they become more and more and more and more competent. They deserve to have meaning. They deserve to have the emphasis on their potential and their possibilities over their limitations. Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility, Ellen J. Langer. It's a fun read. She's got lots of great stories and studies of the stuff that she did. And you come away with it feeling like you should pay more attention to the good stuff. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.